Oh, good morning. Hopefully you're in a good mood. I am. So, because uh, we're in the house of the Lord today. And it's an opportunity to dive into his word, to worship him, and to have the fellowship of the saints. And uh, that is something you cannot take for granted uh, in this season of time. And so it's a privilege to open the word of God with you. If you're new here this morning, my name is Tony. And you are coming into what we are doing as a series uh, this fall uh, called Encounter Jesus, or Encountering Jesus, and we're taking this out of the Gospel of John, and that's where we're going to be today, so we're going to be turning to John chapter 14. If you do not have a Bible, our ushers will be glad to provide you one, and, uh, and this can be a gift from us to you uh, if you do not own a Bible, or you can just simply borrow it for the morning. So John chapter 14, and part of what this series is doing is that Jesus in the gospel of, Matthew, uh, of John is a series of moments where encounters with people and Jesus are creating new understanding and greater appreciation for the role and purpose of Jesus Christ. And so every situation is a greater, leads to a greater understanding of who Christ is, and for John, who was a follower in an inner circle of Jesus, he is now giving us the account of these key moments by which we can then understand Christ all the more. And in John chapter 14, we're going to be looking at what I believe is likely the most uh, popular of all the I am statements that Jesus makes. Uh, but in this particular one, uh, we need to have a better understanding of the context to appreciate its meaning. And so hopefully you'll walk away this morning having enjoyed greater understanding into a very familiar text uh, found in Scripture. And so in John chapter 14, verse 1, and I'm just going to read one verse to start. And it says, do not, Jesus speaking, do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. Let me say it again. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, but believe also in me. So what is the context that Jesus is speaking to that would cause him to say, don't let your hearts be troubled? Well, first of all, you need to know that this is happening on the night that Jesus was betrayed. Maundy Thursday is what we call it from Latin, and where there were several things that happened. Jesus washed the disciples' feet. He did the first communion. He also predicts uh, about Judas's betrayal. But some key things that would have created the hearts being troubled were, first of all, he said in, uh, towards the beginning of this in John chapter 12, same night, same table, says, I'm going to leave you. The hours come, I'm leaving you. And on top of that, I'm going to die, and one of us is going to betray me, and the strongest among you, Peter, is going to disown me three times by tomorrow morning. So that list of things leads to the moment why Jesus would say, don't let your hearts be troubled. Now imagine putting yourself, again, to appreciate this moment, put yourself in their shoes and Imagine yourself giving up your career, leaving your family, giving up your friendships to go travel for three years with Jesus. For you as a person, every day was dictated not by you, but by your leader. So where they go next, what they're going to do that day, what they are to say, what they are to accomplish on behalf of Jesus, all of it was guided by Jesus himself. For three years, they did not have to lead their own life. They just simply had to follow. So come this night, Jesus says, I'm leaving you. I'm leaving you. The hours come, I must leave, and I'm going to die. And one of us is going to be the one to betray me. And one of us, the strongest of you all, Peter, is going to disown me three times by tomorrow morning. Reason for your hearts being troubled. Have you been in a place where all that was familiar to you, all that you ever knew, all of a sudden is not there, and you have nothing to rely upon 
to know the way to go. I can appreciate the troubled spirit that these disciples had after three years of knowing what to do each day just by simply following and to, to now be in a place where he's leaving and not knowing where to go and to feel a lot of stress and anxiety. This moment was captured for me on one of my mission trips to Mexico. I've led 10 different mission trips there, and this was the 10th and final one. Now, all of my mission trips were to the border towns of Mexico. We would usually stay at a camp inside the country of Mexico, but we would always be within about 30 minutes of a gate, a border crossing gate, to get back into the States. Well, everything, all those years, always went well. I got to know the area. I was familiar with the, the two primary gates that we were near, uh, the one that would lead to McAllen, Texas, and the other one that would lead to Brownsville, Texas. And so those two gates I'd gone through multiple times, uh, and I was used to the type of driving that was there. I knew how things were uh, in the daytime in the cities, and I knew how things were at night. I had experienced all those things. So there was a, a lot of awareness, if you will, of my experiences on this trip to help you appreciate what happens. So we had a student, a female, that was a junior year of high school. And we went on this trip. It was 105 to 108 degrees every day. The humidity levels were basically at 100%, very tropical. So we sweated a lot, very hot, and there was no shade. And this girl had not told us that she did not like water. So imagine being in a, an unshaded place all day long, working with over 100 children, and you're in the sun with 105 to 108 degree heat, complete humidity, and she's not drinking. We did not know that was happening. We provided water coolers for our team. We had a team of about 25 people. We, there was plenty of water provided, provided, but she herself was not drinking. By early afternoon, she became so dehydrated, she collapsed and, we, and was shaking pretty uncontrollably. So we ended up realizing we've got to get her to a hospital because we didn't know what was wrong with her. The on-site director for the organization we were with says, well, I, can, I have my car here. Um, we can go with her. And, and I'm like, well, I need to go because I have all the legal forms and I have to be the legal representative for her. And because it was a female, we needed to have a female leader go with us as well. So the four of us jumped in a car, went across the border to McAllen, Texas, and to the hospital. This was about 2.30 to 3 o'clock in the afternoon when we arrived at the hospital. So as time went on, that female leader and that student uh, was in a waiting room that we could not, as men, go to. Hours passed by. Finally, they, were, they were, went into the inner room. We were told that they were now being seen by a doctor. As time went on, it's now 11.45 p.m. And the director that I was with gets this panic look on his face. He says, the gate we just came through, the border gate, closes at midnight. And we're 20 minutes away. We're not going to make it. And I look at him like, well, how are we going to get back to the camp? Because our team is back at that camp in Mexico. And he goes, we're going to have to drive down to Brownsville, Texas, which was about an hour away. So we finally get out of that hospital around 1230 in the morning. We make our drive down to Brownsville, Texas to cross into Matamoros, Mexico. But it's nighttime. Now, I've gone through that gate multiple times, and you can see the gate on the screen now, that what it looks like in the daytime, and what it looks like at night. What I had never done was gone through that gate at nighttime. And what I wasn't in the, re in the know of is that when you come into Matamoros at night, they do not allow you to use the normal streets. They put blockades to control the security of the city. So the way we knew to get back to that camp, which was going to be about an hour back the direction of north and west, we needed to get to a particular highway, and the route to that highway was straight ahead, but it was barricaded. So we made a right, the only direction we could go. Then we made a left, 
Then we made a right. Then we made a left. And then I stopped losing count. Then we ended up on a street that was more like an alleyway. And a car is coming towards us. One car worth of traffic. And it's coming towards us, laying on its horn. And we realize we're going the wrong way on a one-way street. It is dark. It is not a place you want to be. We were clearly in a neighborhood that we didn't want to be at at 2 in the morning. And we are lost in the city of Matamoros with no way to know how to get to that highway that would take us back to Camp Gateway. So he pulls off on the sidewalk. So we're sitting on the sidewalk in this little compact car. He's the driver. I'm the passenger up front riding shotgun. The two ladies were in the back. And I pray. For the first time in my life that I can ever recall, praying, asking for angelic help. Lord, we're lost. We're in a place that I do not know. We need your angels to protect us and to lead us out of here. I have to admit, I prayed with confidence, but I was shaking internally. When you don't know the way, and you're in foreign territory, you'll appreciate the moment that these disciples are feeling. Now I'll finish that story at the end of my message. But the point is, when you're lost, and you don't know the way to go, and you sense that there's danger your hearts are going to be troubled. I believe it's an understatement by John because he was one of them. He recognized they were panicked. After all, Jesus has just said, I'm leaving you after three years of leadership. I'm going to die, which seemed completely strange to them that he would allow himself to die after he's just raised from the dead a man the previous week. And now... He says, the strongest among you, the most brave, Peter. He's going to disown me three times before this night is done. They were panicked. They were afraid. Which then helps you understand what lies next. So let's continue reading in verse 2. It says, do not, it says, my father's house, this is where I'm going. My father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you? That I am going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go, back, go and prepare a place for you. I will come back and take you to be with me. That you may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. Let me stop there before I continue. Jesus has told them. Don't let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God. Now I need you to believe in me. Because where I am going is a place called my father's house. And there are many rooms there that I'm going to prepare for you. So I am leaving you because I'm going to meet some needs for you down the road. They understood that he was talking about heaven. They would understand that his father's house would be a place that they would want to be. Who wouldn't want to be? In the Father's house, the Father God, creator of the world, leader of all, the only true God. Who would not want to be in that house? Yet that's where Jesus was going. They wanted to go too. But he says, I must leave. Because that's where I'm going, is to prepare a place for you. But then in verse 3, look what he says. He says, and if I go and prepare a place for you, again, at my Father's house, I will then come back. I will come back and take you to be with me that you may be where I am. So Jesus is saying that there's going to be a point in time after some times of preparing these spaces for you to be with my father in his house, I will come back for you. Again, this would have been understood by the Hebrew learner because they knew about the resurrection of mankind from the dead in the final of days. And they also knew and realized that, that Jesus is the one that is going to be the fruition of that resurrection. After all, Jesus has already taught, and it was the message last week that Nick preached, where he said, I am the resurrection and the life. 
which would have been strange to have then identified himself as the resurrection because they were all longing for it. They were pining for it. They wanted to experience it. And now Jesus is saying, I'm going to be the one that comes back and initiates that resurrection. Then he says in verse 4, And you then know the way to the place where I'm going. So he speaks into them with confidence, saying, You know where I'm going, the Father's house, and you know the way to get there. He says it with confidence. He speaks it into their lives. But look at what happens next in verse 5. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you are going. So how can we know the way? Jesus has just said where he's going. All right? He says, I am going to my father's house to prepare a way for you. I will come back, which again, they would understand the resurrection of the dead. They would understand that being a final point. I will come back for you. But until then, you know the way. All right, so you got to let that sink in. So Thomas then asked, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we possibly know the way? How can we know the way to the Father's house? Now, the most famous of I am statements. Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one, no one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, then you will know my Father as well. And from now on, you do know him and have seen him. I am the way, the truth, and the life. So Jesus speaking, again, something that is consistent with what he's already taught. Consider again what was found in John chapter 10 when Jesus says, I am the gate. And as we taught just three weeks ago, that when Jesus said, I am the gate, and no one can then enter into that gate or into my father's sheep pen unless they go through me. He says it twice about himself being the exclusive entry point to a relationship with God. He now says again to Thomas who says, how can we know the way when we don't know where you're going? After Jesus has just said, I am going to the Father's house to prepare a place for you, and I will come back for you. Until then, you do know the way. But he didn't get it. So now Jesus says, Thomas, I am the way. I am the truth, and I am the life. So he's already now drawing upon that which he's already told them in John chapter 10, being that gate. So he's saying, I am the entry point into a relationship or a path to the Father. I am the means by which somebody can have a relationship with God. I am exclusively that path. I am exclusively that entry point. How profound was this? Why do I say with fairly strong confidence this is the most popular and maybe even important of all the I am statements? Because in the book of Acts, the church or this movement that was happening in the growth and explosion of the gospel about Jesus Christ and the life he provides was given the title, The Way. In Acts chapter 9, verse 2, in Acts chapter 19, verses 9 and 23, and in Acts chapter 24, verses 14 and 22, people talking about this movement refer to them the followers of the way. And it was the street people that were calling them the followers of the way, the religious leaders calling them the followers of the way, and even the Roman leadership began to refer to them as the followers of the way. Why was that the case? Because the message of the gospel is deeply rooted into the understanding that there is no other path to find reconciliation with God. There is no other path by which one can have a relationship with God. And there is no other path by one who can understand the truth of who God is. And so as part of the gospel message that these 
early disciples and leaders of the church, they would speak to for all the people of their generation who are clamoring and longing to have reconciliation with God. And the disciples were saying, well, let me show you the way. Let me tell you there is only one way to having that relationship. And so, of course, it became an unmistakable, marked part of the teaching of the gospel that secularists, leaders of the country, religious leaders, and the common people began to refer to them as the followers of the way. So Jesus says not only that I am the way, but he also says I am the truth. He is the truth, the means by which we can then live in the present. How can any of us know how to live in a manner that would glorify God and create a life that is blessed by God unless truth about that is revealed. Truth is essential to knowing the means by how we can follow after Jesus and live. Truth is also what reveals the condition of one's heart before God. Truth is also one that reveals the heart of God for mankind. If you take away truth, how would we know how to live? If you took away truth, how would you know the way? Consider John chapter 8, verse 32, when Jesus says, You shall know the truth, me, and the truth will set you free. You see, it's when you become aware and truth is revealed to you that Freedom then comes to the person because they are redeemed and given payment for, on their behalf, by Jesus' work on the cross. If we know Jesus, the truth of him sets a person free. Remember three weeks ago when we played one of the videos of somebody being baptized, the young man's name was Shane. And part of Shane's story was talking about the moment that he was in a hotel room with having just... Uh, driven uh, quite a few hours drunk and he went into that hotel room because he was an hour and a half away from his final destination and he was no longer able to drive safely so he thought he had been driving unsafely from the beginning but God in his grace allowed him to live to this point he goes to a hotel room goes into that hotel room sees one of the Gideon's Bibles that was provided in that drawer pulls it out opens the Bible up, sees the different subjects and where, what scriptures relate to that subject. He looks up the subject addiction because he's addicted to alcohol. He looks up that subject and it gives the verse, John 8, 32. If you know the truth, Jesus, the truth will set you free. And what did Shane do? He got down on his knees in that hotel room and three times said, Jesus, Set me free. It was a powerful testimony for those of us that were here to see that, that baptism and then to have it played again for the greater church. How beautiful it is to see a person who's been set free by the truth of Jesus Christ. So when Jesus responds to Thomas, who is not connecting the dots that, that Jesus is the resurrection and the life, Jesus is the truth of what they need to know to know how to live, and Jesus is the path by which you can know how to get to the Father. Jesus had to just put it plainly for Thomas to get it. Thomas, I am the way. I am the truth. And then he says, and I am the life. Yes, he is the life, the resurrection and the life, as he had already said in John chapter 11. He is the life, the resurrection itself. And so when we anticipate this resurrection that happens at the end of time, that life will be from Jesus alone. This is a life that death cannot touch. And when you consider John chapter 10, he is saying that, that I have come that give life and life to the full. That's what people were longing for because death was something that was imminent for most people and in their minds because they were an oppressed society. They knew the Romans could at any time annihilate their entire people group. And so to have hope in the resurrection someday to coming out of that grave was so deeply rooted in their longings. 
So when Jesus said, I am that resurrection, I am the one that provides the life eternal, it creates hope. But it also drew upon Old Testament teachings that they had known that there was a life that was going to come someday that would be brought on by God and he would send a messenger to to cause this resurrection of the dead. As Nick shared last week, there were two two schools of thought by the religious leaders at that time. The Sadducees discarded the idea of there being a resurrection from the dead. But the Pharisees, that's what defined them. That's what they lived for. That's what their longing was for. And the greater society of Israel longed for that same thing. And for centuries, they continue to long for that resurrection that they're promised in the Old Testament someday. That there's going to be this messenger from God that will call upon them. That longing that's deeply rooted in Hebrew teaching came to very strong fruition in my mind and understanding and and seeing the reality of it when I was on the top of Mount of Olives and I see it for the first time, all these tombs that are on the hillside. You see, in the Old Testament scriptures, it says that that, the coming of, of this messenger will come from the east over the Mount of Olives. And so they realize that, that when this resurrection happens, those who are on the Mount of Olives will go first. So they clamor to be buried on the Mount of Olives, on the east side of Jerusalem, so that they could be the first to resurrect from the dead. These tombs date back centuries. And to this day, they pay significant amounts of money to be buried on that hillside. Why? Because people do not want to consider death their final act. Nobody wants to see death as the final act. Even an atheist, while they may believe there is nothing that happens after one dies, would still wish that to be different. All religions teach something happens after one dies because God has sown it deeply in the hearts of mankind to long for life beyond death which is why the gospel message is so important because there's only one way to that life and Jesus has said I am that way and I am the truth of that way and I am the one that provides that life by which resurrection can happen John Calvin made this comment in his commentary. He says, Whoever obtains Christ is in want of nothing. He is the beginning, the way. He is the truth, the middle. He is the life, the end. And hence it follows that we ought to begin with him, to continue in him, and to end in him. Because there's no other way to find hope beyond death. So Thomas, while many of the dots did not connect for him until after Jesus' resurrection, in this moment, Thomas' question helps us understand that which is so important to us. You see, mankind tries to attempt new ways towards God. They're in pursuit of new paths towards God or with hope beyond death. But they always find themselves wanting, unless Jesus is the answer. That's the important aspect of what Jesus is saying here, is that he's helping his disciples understand that the means of which they can find an entry point to find where God is at is through Jesus. If you've met Jesus, you've met the gate. All you do is you go through the gate, and you'll find that God will receive you. If you want to know then how to walk once you've gone through that gate and know how to live with life and even anticipate life, well, you need to know the truth about the way. And you need to know the truth about how to live. And then, because Jesus is the life, we have hope for life eternal. But keep in mind, the concern was Their hearts were troubled because they thought they were being left behind and that they wouldn't know the way they were going. And Jesus has just helped Thomas understand that he is the way to God. And he told him, you do know the way because you know me. 
But then Philip in verse 8 says, Lord, simply then show us the Father and that'll be enough for us. And he says, don't you know me, Philip? Even after I've been among you for such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing this work. So believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe the evidence of the works themselves. So Philip thinks, well, okay, so... Jesus has just said, I am the way, the truth, the life. They understand that now because all that teaching has happened in John 10, John 11, John 12. But that doesn't change the fact that they're scared to death for Jesus' departure. They're thinking they're being left behind with no hope. But look at verse 15. Jesus says, if you love me, Keep my commands, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever. The spirit of truth, the world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Do you realize what has just been said is as Jesus spoke to Philip and him saying, just show us the Father and that'll be enough. He's like, don't you know that by meeting me, you've met the Father? Because he and the Father commune so closely together that they are one and the same in that Jesus knows what the Father's will is. And the heart of the Father. And so he lives it out out of joy and full connected, connectedness to the Father. And the Father knows that he can trust the Son. And he encourages him to go and live out the faith that, that he wants people to grab a hold of. This intertwine, this union that is happening between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit is now going to be experienced by you and I. He says to these disciples, if you believe in me, if you believe in me and your faith is in me, you've chosen me as the way and you're living out the truth, guess what I send you? I send you the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is just like the way he communes with the Father and with me is the same way he's going to commune with you. The Father and the Son, they, as he's just said earlier to Philip, he goes, I am in him and he is in me. And now I'm sending you the Holy Spirit who will be in you and with you. You're not going to be alone. And the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of truth as he titles him, will be another advocate. Why? Because Jesus is our advocate. Hebrews talks about Jesus being our advocate who speaks into the, the right ear of the Father. But the Holy Spirit is also an advocate who is in us and with us. He gives us confidence to know how to live. He reminds us of the truth of Jesus' life. And when we doubt, he reminds us that Jesus is the way. And when we're lonely, he reminds us that Jesus has never forsaken us. The Holy Spirit is in us and with us as the third part of the Trinity. Jesus made the comment in, in, in earlier in John chapter 14, or later on in John chapter 14, that he doesn't say anything but what the Father has already said. But in John chapter 16, he also says that the Holy Spirit speaks nothing but that what he's heard the Son and the Father say. So there is unison in the triune God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They commune together. They are one together. They do nothing outside of what the other, what the Father wills. And the Holy Spirit then includes us. He comes to live in us. When we, it says in Ephesians 1 that when we believe, the Holy Spirit is given to us as a gift, but also as a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. That inheritance is the Father's house of where Jesus is preparing many rooms for us. 
And that spirit of truth, he will lead us into all truth. He will speak that which the Father and the Son have spoken. And because he's in us and with us, we get to commune like the triune God gets to commune. And that's why Jesus says, with confidence, in, in, chapter, in verse 18, it says, I will not leave you as orphans. You are not abandoned. I am with you. Do not be troubled. Do you see the power of these words? To a troubled soul that thinks they're being left behind. That he's saying, I am not that kind of God. I am not that kind of leader. I will be with you. And that's why I send my spirit to you who will be in you and with you so that you will have comfort in the present. So going back to that moment in Matamoros, Mexico, in an alleyway that we did not belong, in the middle of the night, lost, not knowing how to get to where we wanted to go. That prayer was, Lord, send your angels because we need let out of here. At the end of that prayer, while well, I'll admit that I prayed it with confidence for those in the car to hear, but internally, I was scared to death. We see lights coming in our mirrors. They had followed us. And as those lights got closer, then all of a sudden, red and blue lights began to flash. It was a police officer. I'll have to admit, I did not see this as God's answer to my prayers. That, that police officer got out of his car, came to our window, and the director who was in the driver's seat began to speak in English, saying that we're lost, we want to get to a particular highway, and we need to get to Camp Gateway, but he did not say where Camp Gateway was. Somehow, in the midst of all of that statement of, of our situation, that police officer spoke in Spanish, didn't know a lick of English that we could tell, goes back to his car, drives around us and gets in front of us, going the wrong way on that one way, turns on his lights, puts his hand out the window again, and waits for us to follow him. We take rights, we take lefts. It's seemingly getting into darker and darker places of the city. But then all of a sudden, we turned onto a street, and I could see the ramp to the highway we wanted. He pulls up onto the ramp, pulls off to the side, waves us to go beyond, we had just been led out of the city by a police officer. I look back and I just say, who am I to doubt that Jesus abandons us? Who am I to doubt that God isn't leading the way, even in our momentary trials? When we felt so isolated and alone and our hearts were troubled, Jesus provided a means. We cried out to him. The plan was already in place. Jesus already knew what he was going to do. But he wanted us to see that he was the one at work. So the prayer happens. And then he shows off his power. And we get escorted out of the city by a divine angel with lights. I look back on that and say, God is at work. Jesus is our advocate. He's talking to God on our behalf. But his Holy Spirit then is working in us saying, just pray. Just talk to God about it. He's got this. But if you don't know Jesus as the way, you don't have the Spirit. And if you don't have the Spirit, then how can you know the truth? And then how would you know how to live or have hope for life eternal? which is really the takeaways of this morning. Jesus is the exclusive path to a relationship with God. There is no other. You can try to create other paths. You can try to imagine other paths because the human nature says, I want to have life beyond death. But human nature also says, I can achieve it. Or try to anyway. And the reality is we can't. Only Jesus can provide the means and the way. We have to walk through that gate. But Jesus is not only the path to God, he is also the path to life eternal with God. So that hope that we all have that death is not our end, 
that will only be found in Jesus alone as well. And lastly, until that death moment happens, for those who have faith and trust in the work of Jesus Christ as being the way and the truth, the spirit of truth is given to us to navigate life so that we can also anticipate life eternal. But it only comes through Jesus. It's been my prayer that as we've been in this series of encountering Jesus, that for those of us that maybe have traveled for years with Jesus, would realize that he is also the truth by how to live. He is also the hope by which we can have life. These disciples walked with Jesus for three years and didn't connect the dots. Some of you have been walking with Jesus for 15 years, 20 years, and you've forgotten that Jesus is the way. He is also the truth by how to live, and he is the life by which we can have hope beyond death. So when you have feared and you've been troubled over the last several months, as a follower of God, may I turn your eyes back towards Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, the one who provides hope beyond this life. Let's pray. Jesus, I recognize that as much as I might try to appease the wrath that's set up against me, the judgment that is due me because of my sin, I am so thankful that you, by grace, offered the path that truly will reconcile the gap. I'm thankful, Jesus, that your work on the cross saved me. I'm thankful, Jesus, that your work on the cross and your resurrection give me hope for life and life eternal. And God, I realize that many have not made that decision, and so therefore they don't have the spirit of truth living in them, that spirit that communes with you so deeply. And so they don't have that hope of daily living that gives us guidance on knowing how to live out a day of truth. I ask God that you would reveal that, that gap that hole that is only shaped by you as God and that you will fill it and give them the gift of faith. And then the promised Holy Spirit who will then counsel them and guide them into how to live. And God, for those here in this room that have known you for years, the Thomases and the Phillips, they're just simply missing out on the fullness of what you're teaching. Broaden our mind. Help our eyes to see anew what it means to be fixed on you and to cast out all other things that would hinder our run and our race. So do a fresh work in our lives as we dedicate ourselves anew or maybe for the first time to the one who is the way, the truth, and the life. Thank you, Jesus. In your name I pray. Amen. Would you stand with us to sing? Come on, church. Jesus has offered us new life through his resurrection. Savior.
who wouldn't want this? I mean, really, who wouldn't want hope beyond death? I mean, do you want to live a life where when death happens, you have no idea? And that it's simply this dark void? No. You want an answer. You want to understand what is there beyond that? That's why Jesus says in John 10.10, he says, The thief comes to only steal, kill, and destroy. But I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. God is not a killjoy God. God wants to give life to us now and life beyond death. This isn't meant to be something that is oppressive. It's something that releases as we talk that when you come into the reaction and the experience of Jesus, he sets you free because he's the truth and the reality of that which God is doing on this earth. So it is an appeal to you That if you have known this truth for years, but you need to re-engage it anew, don't walk out these doors without making right your walk with God. Say, Jesus, I know you as the way, the truth, and the life, but I have not been living according to the truth and believing according to the way. Because you've tried to answer it by your own style of living. For some of you, you need to come into the encounter of Jesus now for the first time and discover what it means to have hope. Regardless of wherever you're at, if you're here in this room, we offer an opportunity for you to pray with someone in the encounter room, which is to my left, your right, in the entrance going back that way. And somebody would be glad to pray with you and talk with you. If you're at home, I would encourage you to reach out to us at office at lefc.net, and we'd be glad to talk to you more about the way. I would love to be known as the way, in the part of the way, the movement of God here on this earth. The church doesn't bear that name in society like it used to, but people do know that we teach the exclusivity of Jesus. I saw it in the news just last week that when an interview was happening of an evangelical, they said, well, let's not talk about it. We know that you believe you've got the right answers and nobody else does. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) It's true. We know the way. We're not the way, but we know the way. And that's our opportunity to share it. So we do so as Peter charges us with gentleness and respect because we want to see the hearts of people discover what we've learned to be true, that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Let those be the final words spoken into you this morning. You are dismissed, but go trusting in the way that Jesus provides. Amen.